All right, let me pray for us and then we'll dive in. Uh, Lord, you are the true teacher, and we want you to subvert our normal ways of thinking. We want you to subvert the status quo. And would you now, spirit to spirit, would you now uh, teach and speak through me? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, glorification. When I was assigned the topic for this week, they told me to talk on glorification. And I have to tell you, I've been a, a pastor for about 14 years, and I have never given a sermon on glorification. I thought, why in the world would they ask me to talk about glorification to you? Well, let's get our facts straight, because I'd be negligent if you walked away from this week and weren't clear on what glorification technically was. So classically speaking, for you note takers out there, glorification is not what happens to you when you die. That is not glorification when you die. Have you ever wondered what happens to you when you die? Of course you have. Every human being asks what happens at death. Some of you have lost people very close to you, and some of you recently. Where are they? You say, heaven. Well, we don't know much about heaven. But with the Bible's help, we can say this. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and immediately pass into God's presence. So when you die or someone you love, your spirit immediately goes into God's presence. Your body, however, your remains rest in the ground until Christ comes again. One day, could be tonight, could be a hundred years from now, Christ will return to complete what His resurrection began, making all things new. And on that day, the dead shall be raised and publicly acquitted, and everyone who is in Christ will be given a new heavenly body incorruptible and made perfectly blessed in God's sight. Now that is glorification. Glorification is uh, what happens at the end of time. It is the last step in the application of the work of Christ. And on that day, death will forever die. And on that day, and only on that day, can it be said, death, where is thy sting? On the day of glorification. The most uh, famous description of glorification in the history of Christian literature, perhaps, is from uh, C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory, where he writes, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship. He continues, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Now that is an eloquent description of glorification. But glorification is not just about what happens to you individually. All creation will be made new at the end of time. Everything sad will come untrue. All creation will be made new. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. 
my little girl, Emmy B, just turned five. That's Emmeline Beatrice, but we call her Emmy B. And uh, Emmy B is, uh, she's sharp. She's smart, like her mom. And uh, Emmy B said, Daddy, does the sky die? There's been some, some death in her little life because she's lost. She's been at two funerals in her life of her grandmothers. And, she's, and you know, we, we had to say that everyone dies. And she said, well, does the sky die? And I said, well, actually, maybe that is a, that's a pretty complicated question. And she said, well, what is the answer? <laughs> and I said, well, technically speaking... There is both continuity and discontinuity in the new creation. <laughs> and so she went around and said, technically speaking, there's continuity and discontinuity in the new creation. So that's, that's glorification. All right? So with that bit of extended throat clearing, by definition, glorification is what will happen to you someday. It is most likely very far removed from your present experience. So why do you care? And for that matter, why do I care? For that matter, why ask me to talk about something that is by definition far removed from your present experience? Okay, it's coming. It's perhaps a long way away. And it'll be great. In short, who gives a rip about glorification? And yet, the more I've been compelled... To think about glorification, glorification is formed uh, from the word glory. And glory is something that we think a whole lot about, don't we? Our future glory. You may not realize how much you think about your future glory. But nothing shapes how you see the world today more than your frame of reference for where your life is headed, for what you were aspiring toward, to, for your, then your horizon, then your glory. This is not a uniquely Christian idea. Philosophers uh, and artists from across the ages and civilizations have had this similar insight. For example, the Stoic philosopher Epictetus said, Men are disturbed not by things, but by their opinions about them. It's a fascinating sentence. That's cognitive behavioral therapy in one sentence said 2,100 years ago by Epictetus. Men are disturbed not by things but by their opinions about them. He's saying it's not what happens to you that's decisive for you but how you interpret what happens to you. Your interpretation is shaped by your mindset and your mindset is shaped by your aspiration, what you hope for, what you value. Shakespeare Put it this way. He says, there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. These men were not relativist. They're saying it's how we see the world. It's our perspective. It's our mindset that most affects our lives on earth here and now. There's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. If you want the biblical statement of it, you can find it in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on the earth. Set your mind, the apostle says. It's your mindset 
that shapes how you see the world today. And nothing shapes how you see the world today more than your hope, your horizon, what you aspire toward, what you consider to be your glorification. If I've lost you in this uh, little philosophical detour, think about how you got to this conference center. You put your destination in your GPS in your phone. And this destination put in perspective each step along the way. It helped you to decide where to stop, where to turn, when to eat. And it's something that concerns you consciously or not all the time. You're always making decisions, prioritizing things, judging things, evaluating this, not that. This is good. This is bad. Based on your horizon based on your view of the good life, based on your glorification. So for you note takers out there, here's my thesis that I'll be unpacking over the next five days. Nothing shapes your present more than your future hope on which your heart is set. Nothing shapes your present more than the future hope on which your heart is set. Or let me say it a different way. The hope you set your heart on will determine the course of your life. The hope you set your course on will determine the course of your life. Christian or not, everyone sitting in this room, we all have a vision of the good life. The hope you set your heart on will determine the course of your life. And you have a choice. You have a choice. So that's my thesis. I'm going to be spending the next five nights convincing you of that. Uh, tonight, where I'm headed tonight is we'll take up the question of ambition, the hunt for glory. Maybe you're not so brazen as to admit that you hunt for glory. Maybe for, for many of us, it just takes the form of the fear of being ordinary. That that is your greatest fear, to be ordinary, phobo, if you will. But really, it's just a modest way of saying you hunger for glory. You hunger for glory. The question is, which glory? So that's tonight's question. What is your ambition? Tomorrow night, we'll take up, what is your horizon? What are you aiming toward? How will you know you're living a good life? The philosopher Dallas Willard says, that's a question every human being asks. How will you know you're living a good life? Night three, we'll look at the road to glory. If you want glory, and you do, if you want glory, God says, here's the way. Night four, we'll look at the road to glory continued. You want glory, here's another way. And night five, the hope of glory along the way. But let's get to it for tonight. Ambition. What is your ambition? What glory do you seek? And let's look at, an, let's look at ambition under four headings. Ambition reconsidered. I'm going to get you to reconsider this word ambition. Ambition corrupted. This drive within all of us in this room has been corrupted. Ambition crucified. That drive in each of us needs to be crucified. And fourth, ambition healed. Along the way, we'll interact with this story from the Gospel of John, chapter 12. It's the last week of Jesus' life. There's a large crowd following him around because the story is out. He's raised some guy named Lazarus from the dead, and people are beginning to choose sides. But Jesus' thoughts are on the fate he knows soon awaits him. So here's John 12, beginning in verse 27. Jesus is speaking. 
Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said that it had thundered. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Verse 37 Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So ambition reconsidered. When you hear that word ambition, is that a good word to you or a bad word or an indifferent word? Do you consider yourself not to be ambitious? Well, this whole question for am- of ambition was a big one for me in college because I became a Christian, I became a follower of Jesus my senior year in college, my senior year at Ole Miss. And while on the, on the one hand it was an enormous uh, relief for me to, to hear and to believe the gospel of grace, on the other hand it was enormously traumatic for me. It was enormously traumatic. And let me illustrate by way of the film Moneyball. Uh, the story of a small uh, market general manager from the Oakland Athletics named Billy Bean. Billy Bean of the Oakland Athletics changed the way Major League Baseball players are valued. He changed the game of Major League Baseball. See, up until a few years ago, Major League Baseball teams looked at a lot of stats to determine a a player's value. They looked at uh, home runs and uh, batting percentage and slugging percentage. Billy Bean's breakthrough was that in baseball, only one number matters. What is that? Wins. That's all that matters is wins. And at the end of the day, how do you win? You score more runs than your opponent. How do you score runs? You get on base. On base percentage. Now, if you don't like baseball, this may not interest you. But I submit it's a question we can all, it's a story we can all relate to. How one person can change the system by his courage or her courage to question the status quo. And the climactic scene of the film, Billy Bean is talking to the owner of the Boston Red Sox. See, everyone is mad at Billy Bean. And Billy Bean is talking to the owner of the Boston Red Sox. And he goes, why is everyone so mad at me? And the owner of the Red Sox says, don't you understand? You're questioning the whole system. Scouts, players, managers, you are threatening their whole way of life. The way they have always done things. You are calling that into question. And it will never be the same again. No wonder they are so upset with you. Now, that's exactly how I felt when I became a Christian. Jesus was threatening my entire way of life. 
What Billy Bean had done for baseball, Jesus did for me. He changed the rules. He overturned everything. My, my motivational structure had been completely upended because I knew up until that point in my life, I had been living completely for Rankin. And I didn't know much about Christianity, but I knew this. I knew that I was supposed to live for Jesus and no longer for myself. But I had no idea what that meant or what it could look like. And this is the question that vexed me more than anything else in my early 20s is, what am I supposed to do with all this drive? What am I supposed to do with this passion, with this desire that I know so many of you in this room have? And the one text in the Bible that has helped me as much as any other is this story in John 12. John is making the point that each one of us seeks glory. We are all ambitious. Seven times in this chapter, John mentions glory. He wants you to see that everyone in this scene, including Jesus, is pursuing glory. We are hardwired to hunger for glory. The question is, whose glory? Whose glory will your life be spent in passionate pursuit of? Look at the text in verse 37. Though Jesus had done many signs, some still did not believe. Parenthetically, that, that means miracles don't always convince people. They'd done many signs, some still did not believe, but verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. In other words, many reputable people believed in Jesus, but they were afraid to admit it because they would lose their positions in reputable society if they crossed the establishment. And we get that, that there is a public price to pay for acknowledging that you know Jesus and you're with Jesus. I certainly a, a, a price I feel very keenly in, uh, in Los Angeles, where in the latest uh, census of the city of L.A., it's 4.5% Christian. And, you know, it's, it's so weird. You meet someone, and they're like, wow, you're, you're a Christian? I mean, it's, it's just like complete, I, I might as well say I'm from Mars or something. It's like, wow. You know, it's just... It's so strange. And am, am, I going to, am I going to out myself and say, yeah, I'm, I'm with Jesus. I'm with him. So they're afraid. They're afraid to say that they follow Jesus. But I want you to look at verse 43 where, where John allows you insight into the real motivation behind their reluctance to acknowledge Jesus publicly. Verse 43. Here's the key verse. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Another translation says they love the praise that comes from man more than the praise that comes from God. See, you will either live for the glory of God or for the glory of man. You will either live for the praise of men or for the praise of God which means you are an ambitious person. Ambition is not a vile thing, it's a human thing. John Stott says ambition concerns our goals in life. 
and our incentives for pursuing them. A person's ambition is what makes him tick. It is the mainspring of your actions and your secret inner motivation. I don't care if you are the most chill, laid-back dude there is. We all pursue what we value, even if what we value is being seen as chill and laid-back. Okay? In L.A., LA, they actually have a term for this, uh, and maybe it's the same term where you live. They call it studied casual. It means you, you spend a whole lot of time making it look like you didn't take any time at all. Studied casual. So you hunger for glory. Do you know this about yourself? That's ambition reconsidered. So ambition is not the problem. The problem is that when our God-given hunger for glory gets corrupted, our ambition is corrupted. There's this drive within all of us that is corrupted. And what does corrupted ambition look like? Well, once again, let me quote an essay by C.S. Lewis where he makes this important distinction. He says, ambition, it isn't wrong for an actor to want to act his part as well as it can possibly be acted. But the wish to have his name in bigger type than the other actors is a bad one. What we call ambition usually means the wish to be more conspicuous or more successful than someone else. And he says, it is this competitive element that is bad. It is perfectly reasonable to want to dance well or to look nice. But when the dominant wish is to dance better or to look nicer than the others. When you begin to feel that if the others danced as well or looked as nice as you, that would take all the fun out of it. Then you may be sure you are going wrong. Timothy Dwight, uh, 160 years ago at the commencement address at Yale University, he was the president in 1842, as commencement address was entitled The Love of Distinction, which he defined as the desire to stand out from your peers in the marketplace of skill and ability. The love of distinction. And the, the charge to the Yale graduates that day was nothing will poison your life more than the love of distinction. Quite different from commencement addresses you hear today. George Clooney, why does he work so hard? He tells you in a recent magazine article. He says, most of the time I wake up and I feel like I've missed something. Sleep is something I have to make myself do. My dad keeps getting on me about not having a family, but I say, name one actor from the 1920s. You can't. Nobody remembers those guys. It's not just George Clooney. It's not just athletes juicing up to hit it farther or run faster. I'd wager most of us in this room crave distinction compared to others, especially in our field. That is ambition corrupted. See, we all have little glory projects, don't we? We all have our little immortality projects. That is ambition corrupted. And for our ambition to be healed, sooner or later it must be crucified. That's my good news for you tonight. That sooner or later your ambition has to be crucified. I don't know what it will look like for you, but I'll just tell you by way of fairness what it will look like for me. And maybe this is more applicable for your campus ministers. 
but in my life it will look like the crucifixion of my ministry. The crucifixion of my ministry. In fact, we ought to just abolish that phrase, my ministry. What is the crucifixion of my ministry? It means the difficult awareness that my ministry must be displaced by the ministry of Christ. It is not my ministry. In my career, I must be bumped aside, perhaps painfully from the center. Otherwise, my ego is too tied to how I'm doing. When when you can finally say, God, I no longer want to work for my own glory. I want to work for your glory. I don't know what it'll look like for you, but whatever your vocational eyes are set on, from the boardroom to the classroom to the law firm to the nursery, whatever your ambition, whatever your career, whatever your calling, whatever, whatever your vocation, you too must be displaced from the center of your life. And I don't know what it will look like, but I know this. The more competent you think you are, the more difficult and painful that displacement will be. And I tell you that from personal experience. The more competent you think you are, the more painful that displacement will be. I hope if you came here this week feeling uh, very defeated, maybe you didn't get into the grad school or law school or med school you wanted to get into or or your career just isn't taking the path you thought it would. Or maybe your heart's broken, or maybe you've been profoundly let down. Thank God the Lord is displacing you from the center of your life. That is the grace of God in your life, these little deaths. Andrew Purvis puts it, by His grace, God brings us to the place where our reliance on what we can do is crucified by God. So we've seen our ambition reconsidered. That We all seek glory. We've seen ambition corrupted, but this pursuit gets uh, twisted into seeking our own glory. That our ambition needs to be healed by being crucified. So fourthly, what will it look like for our ambition to be healed? What does that even mean, to live for the glory that comes from God? Well, patient zero of healed ambition is the Apostle Paul. By all accounts, before he became a Christian, Paul was a very driven, successful man. His resume, as you know, is found in the book of Philippians. And if you'll allow me to give a modern paraphrase, okay? This is is my modern paraphrase of Paul's resume is given in Philippians. B.A. Yale. J.D. Harvard. Clerked John Roberts, spent summers digging wells in Africa, have never had a parking ticket. Now that is a modern, okay, this guy had it all. That is a modern paraphrase about what the Bible says about Paul. Think of the most successful person you know and dial it up a notch. That's Paul. But something happened to him. Jesus encountered him. And you know, this part of the story is almost always overlooked. After that encounter, Paul spent the next 14 years doing, we don't know. 
Have you ever noticed that? It wasn't like he was on the road to Damascus and just zap. And I'm an apostle. And he wrote Galatians. That's not how it happened. He encountered Jesus and then he spent the next 14 years doing we don't know. But for my money, it was figuring it out. What will this mean? See, his ambition was crucified, but it took years for it to be healed. And I don't know about you, but I, t- I take such solace in that little overlooked detail of Paul's story. That it took years. Because I'll tell you this, it can take a long time to be yourself on purpose. It can take a long time. For Paul, it took 14 years. But he gives us a picture of ambition healed. He says in Philippians 3, verse 7, Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. This is fascinating. The Apostle Paul renounces not his failures, but his successes, his trophies, his badges of distinction. He says, I now consider those loss. See, it's not just that they didn't earn him any points. They detracted from his score. They took points away. They took him farther away from his goal. They worked against his new ambition. In other words, the very things he was most prone to take pride in, the things he was most to build his identity around and say, this is who I am, look at what I did. He says, I now consider a loss because they distracted me from what was more valuable. I count them as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now that's what it means to love the glory that comes from God. To love the glory that comes from God is to love Jesus and His glory. It's to love what God wants for you more than what you want for you. His vision for you at the end of time becomes your vision for you here and now. See, glorification is not just about what happens at the end of time. You seek glory all the time. Glorification is not just about our future. It's about what orients your present desires and aspirations. So how will you get from here to there? Well, you have to encounter Christ. You could spend 14 years figuring it out like the Apostle Paul. But no matter what, your ambition has to be crucified. It's this painful awareness. The phrase we use today is midlife crisis. But let me tell you what a midlife crisis is. It's when you realize you are never going to get the life you want by seeking your own glory. And it's not just the futility of seeking your own glory. You see the incomparable worth of seeking Christ. Here is the turn. What makes you seek God's glory is finally seeing what God's glory looks like. Listen to what Jesus says in John 12, verse 27. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me? No, it was for this very purpose that I came. And then listen to the next line, verse 28. Father, glorify your name. He's at this crisis in his life and what shall I say my soul is troubled father save me from this hour and he says no it's for this very purpose that I came father glorify your name it's seeking the glory of God was Jesus chief ambition 
Then a voice thundered from heaven, verse 28, I have glorified it, that is my son, look at you. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And what is that referring to? Well, Jesus tells us how God will glorify his name again in verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He's talking about the manner in which he will die. See, God was most glorified when the Lord of glory was crucified. That is the glory of God, the crucifixion of Jesus. See, when you see that this is the glory of God, that he would give of himself to serve you, to save you, this is glory to God. And when you see that that is glory to God, that will become glory for you. So what, is it, what does this do with all this uh, energy and drive you have? Don't you see that following Jesus does not dilute your passion one bit. It doesn't dilute your drive one bit. It redirects it. It reorients it. So in closing tonight, let me just give you uh, a few quick pictures of ambition healed, of the hunger for glory healed, the heart for glory healed. I'll just give you three quick pictures. First, healed ambition gives you the freedom to fail. Do you know the freedom to fail? Do you have the freedom to fail? It's a young woman in our church in Los Angeles. She's one of the most talented, uh, extraordinary young people I've ever met. And she's, she's racked with performance anxiety. And we spent a lot of time together, and, and she finally said, Rankin, I'm just so afraid to fail. And I said, this is a key moment in your life. You're 49% healed. She said, what do you mean 49%? I was like, it's such a breakthrough that you're willing to say out loud what is so true of almost all of us, that you're so afraid to fail. You've identified it. But if your ambition has been healed, then you can truly say, God, my life is for you. Come what may. So give me, God, give me your vision for my life. So when you're living for God's glory and no longer your own, you can take a risk. Instead of what other voices are telling you you should do, you go where God leads you. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when your parents say, what? You want to do what? I remember my mom, when I told her I was going to be a pastor, she's like, Rankin, how, what a waste no offense, pastors, but you know, she said, what a waste of a life. See, healed ambition is when you say, God, your voice matters more to me. It gives you the freedom to fail. Second, healed ambition frees you from envy. It frees you from envy. See, envy always asks one question, what about me? What about me? What about me? You compare your life to someone else's and someone has what you think you want. You say, what about me? Healed ambition frees you from envy. And why does it free you from envy? Because if your life really is for God, then you can leave the results to God come what may. 
One of the greatest poets of all time was uh, Dante Alighieri, who wrote the Divine Comedy. But there's a line in the Divine Comedy that says, Thy will, my peace. Thy will, my peace. Boy, that sets you free from envy. That sets you free from discontentment. It allows you to enjoy the success of others. You don't see the success of others as an indictment against you. People can be better than you at what you do best, and it's okay. You can be second, and you can be satisfied. Because you can say, God, you are my king, and I will serve you in whatever capacity you think is best. It sets you free from envy and discontentment. And third and finally, a third picture of healed ambition, God's word in your heart. God's word in your heart begins to weigh more than your own thoughts or feelings. See, glory literally means weight. That's why Lewis's essay is entitled The Weight of Glory. To live for God's glory is to say that his words matter more and most to you. Let me give you a picture of that, of what it means to live for the glory that comes from God by telling you a story about a young woman, a preacher's daughter, who went into deep depression in college. I mean deep. Some of you know what I'm talking about. She was scared. She thought she was going to die. Her parents were scared. They didn't know what was going to happen to the little girl. And if you've ever had any experience with this, you know depression is a scary thing, isn't it? It's scary. It's physiological, it's complex, it's chemical, but there's always a spiritual component. So she came to her dad, a nationally known pastor, and her dad said, I've been praying about this, and I have some advice for you. She said, what is it, Dad? He said, I think the answer to your depression is that you need to go out and raise a little hell. She said, what, what are you talking about, Dad? And she said, well, I know, you don't, I, I, I know you don't drink alcohol. You should start by getting drunk. I mean, you should drink a lot. I'm serious about this. You should drink a lot. And I know you've kept yourself for your one day perhaps husband. You haven't been sexually involved. You haven't been sexually involved. You have not been sexually involved. I want you to go out and have sex a lot. Go out and try that. She said, Dad, you taught me against those things. He said, I know, and I don't want you to do it, but I think it's the best thing for you. She said, Dad, I don't get it. He said, Well, let me ask you just this. I've written down some of the things that you have been saying about yourself. And you and I, father-daughter, we've had these debates. For instance, you think you're ugly, right? She said, well, I know I'm ugly. And I say, you say you're a little heavy, aren't you? You think you're fat. She said, I know I'm, I know I'm fat. I'm unattractive, definitely. He said, okay, let's just stop here. Let's assume, because I believe differently, let's assume Jesus incarnate in the flesh walks in, actually walks in, and I say, Jesus, what a wonderful opportunity for you to solve a debate between me and my daughter. She thinks she is ugly and fat, and I believe that she is beautiful and wonderful. Jesus, will you settle this debate? What will you say? And he turned to his daughter and said, I want you to be honest. What do you think Jesus would say? And her head dropped down, and she said, I believe that Jesus would say I'm beautiful. He said, so let's get this straight. 
You seem to feel like this alcohol and this sex is the really bad stuff. But which do you think would offend your master the most? The way I described living outside of his rules or looking straight into the face of Jesus and saying, Jesus, I don't care what you're saying because either you're wrong or you're a liar because I know that I'm ugly and I'm fat. She said, I know it would hurt him more to call him a liar and say he was wrong. And her dad said, do you see how offensive your life is in your moralism?" Some of you are running from God by giving more weight to what you think about you than what Jesus says about you. And even in your own upstanding way, you are loving the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And here's why you're having such difficulty believing the gospel. And I'm going to close with this. Now, you know what I'm talking about because you've heard by this point in your life, some of you, hundreds of sermons. And you hear again and again how beautiful you are and how much Jesus loves you. And you wonder, but how can I make it drip down from here to here? Why are you having such trouble? Well, here's the reason Jesus tells you earlier in the Gospel of John. John chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus says, how can you believe? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Ah, never gotten over that verse. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe that Jesus is the delight of your heart when you are still expecting the praise of others to delight your heart? See, you can't believe if your good news is really what other people are saying about you. Living for God's glory is when His word over you literally matters more. It weighs more than anyone else's words, including your own, about you. Now, that is a future glory that puts everything about your present life in perspective. So that's what we'll be talking about this week. What does your future glorification have to do with your life today? Everything. It is about what glory you are seeking. And make no mistake, you are seeking glory. But there's only one that's going to get you home. Well, let me pray for myself and for us. Father, These words are, these are hard words to hear. How can you believe? Lord, because we confess that we do live for the glory that comes from man and not for the glory that comes from you. Lord, help us to confess that. Help us to believe tonight that the, the pathway of seeking our own glory, of, of, of the drive to, to promote ourselves is only going to lead to discontent. Lord, help our ambition to be crucified by whatever path you choose, even the painful path of displacement. Lord, help our ambition to be healed that gives us the freedom to fail, the freedom from envy, and most of all, to be men and women for whom your words weigh more. I pray in Jesus' name.